Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. In last week's podcast, I introduced you to the work of George Lakoff. Lakoff is a cognitive linguist who has been studying the use of metaphors and the effect they have on our behavior. Metaphors are formed early in life. The associations between physical experiences and emotional responses are formed so early we aren't even aware of the links. We talk about warm-hearted people and relationships that run hot and cold, and we aren't even aware of the metaphors that we're using. And that's in part because those metaphors go back to our infancy. When your mother held you in her arms and you experienced warmth and affection linked together, those linkages later became revealed in our language. So we talk about things such as a warm-hearted person. So what has this got to do with climate change? Well, that's what we're exploring in this podcast. Last week, we were looking at the strict father metaphor and how important it is for you to focus on what you want. That's where we'll pick up now as we continue with this conversation. I've been teaching clicker training for a long time, and what I've been learning is how to focus on what it is that I want to share. What is it that I want to teach? I'm not pushing against what somebody else is doing. I don't have to make somebody else wrong in order to present my work. And that's part of the skill that we as horse trainers, and particularly those of us in the positive reinforcement community, that's a skill that we're learning. We're really learning how to focus in on what we want and to talk about that. And that's the skill that I want to share here. What the Lakoff work is doing is helping us to understand the underpinnings of that, of why that is so important. And he also helps us to understand what happens when we start to focus on and talk about what, in quotes, the other is doing that we don't like. That the more we focus on what we don't like, the stronger we make it. So we need to strengthen the things that are going to help the planet. And the more we focus on what we don't like and push against what we don't want, in many ways, the stronger we make it. So that's why I want to share with you this Lakoff work. And I'm going to be sharing it with, from the perspective of the horse training because that's how I originally heard it. That was my metaphor. And maybe by sharing it with you in this way, there will be things that resonate with you that will be of value. And we can have some more discussions and conversations about how we frame both what we say and how we act in terms of how to be effective when we want to help with the climate change crisis. And we may even need to think about what, how we refer to the climate change crisis. Is this the best way of, of naming it? Um, is, that some, is this really the best way of referring to it? But that's a good conversation to save when Manta is here. 
So let's get back to the Lakoff work. The strict father metaphor is really a justification for why punishment is necessary. It's okay to reward your horse when he's done well, but if he disobeys the rider, he needs to be punished. So what Lakoff is offering us is an understanding of this worldview. And instead of arguing about the processes that people are employing, uh, for example, you might use a whip and somebody else might use a click and treat, those techniques, that's all at the level of process, of methods. We need to look deeper than that, and we need to look at core value systems. That will help us to understand, at least in part, why one person is reaching for this tool over here that is a punishment-based tool, and this other person is reaching for a very different kind of tool. So let's look at the other part of this nation as family metaphor. We had the strict father metaphor as one part of the dichotomy. The other side of the coin is the nurturing parent metaphor. So in the nurturing parent metaphor, it's moral to show empathy. It's moral to nurture and to take on individual as well as social responsibilities. So through example, parents raise their children to become nurturing caregivers and caring citizens. In the strict father model, you're looking at the world as a dangerous place and you're seeing it as really competitive. But in the nurturing parent model, you're looking at cooperation. So cooperation is seen as being much more important than competition. And parents teach their children to see the world through other people's eyes. And that means instead of hierarchical communication, the nurturant parent model focuses on more open communication. There's mutual respect between parents and children. And this is very different from that other parenting model where children are expected to show respect for their parents, as in, they, they in a sense, they fear the authority. And that respect is definitely not a two-way street. So again, if we look at this, when I was first exploring Lakoff's work, I was thinking about this in terms of horse training. And it helped me to understand some really basic things. For example, in clicker training, we make very active use of positive reinforcement. So the common way of saying this is we use treats. Now in the strict father model, treats are bad, period. And when you're like me, when you're so used to using reinforcers, my horse does something I like, I'm going to click, and I'm going to mark that behavior, and I'm going to reinforce it with something that my horse will actively work for, which is a really good way of thinking about treats. So when you're used to that kind of training, it just doesn't compute when someone says, oh no, you can't use treats with horses. It doesn't work. It's not right. You're going to ruin that horse. And you think, how can you believe that when you can see in front of you that it's the use of treats, the use of reinforcers 
that is having such a beneficial effect on the behavior that you'd like to shape, you know, that you'd like to change in your horse. So the experience that I've had as a clicker trainer in using treats has been one that's been very positive. I like the results that I get. And yet I know there are many people in the horse world who find the use of treats to be really problematic. And again, the Lakoff work really helps to understand this. So if we go back to the strict father model, in that model, treats would be viewed as bad, period, end of statement. And the question is why? So let's explore that for a moment because it reveals some really, some really deep differences between these two worldviews, between these two ways of looking at politics and these two very different ways of certainly looking at horse training. So in the strict father model, treats are bribes and bribes are immoral. They're associated with indulgent or laissez-faire parenting. And so a quote from Lakoff would be, the children grow up ungoverned and undisciplined, and they are allowed to do whatever they please. So in animal training, treats are considered in the strict father model to be about bribing animals to do what is right. If you use treats, you're just an overly indulgent pet parent letting your, your animals get away with anything that you want. And you know, that, that always reminds me of an experience that I had when I was training Panda, the miniature horse that I trained to be a guide for her blind donor. And when Panda was with me, she accompanied me through, through my day. So wherever I went, Panda was by my side. And one of the places that I went on a very frequent basis was to the post office. So we'd be standing in line, and one of the things that I taught Panda was to press her body against my leg so that even if I wasn't looking at her, I would know exactly where she was. That, you know, yes, I knew where her head was in general, but if I wasn't looking at her, I might know where her head is, but she could easily have swung her hindquarters away from me and, and her hindquarters could be swinging into say, too close to somebody who had a small child, a baby carriage, that sort of thing. But if she's pressed up against my leg, I know exactly where she is without having to look. So she was in training, and, and this was a behavior that I valued and that I wanted to strengthen, and I wanted to build duration in it. So periodically, as she was standing there being the very good little girl that she was, I would click and give her a treat and just to reinforce that, that behavior. And she would wait very patiently and very quietly by my side. In contrast, the human children were often running around the post office, sticking their hands into the mail slot, opening and closing the outside door. Uh, you know, and the parents would be saying, get over here. I told you to, you know, don't touch that. I told you not to touch that. Stop doing that. Get over here. And the children would ignore them. And the whole time that this is going on, Panda would be pressed against my side, being a good little girl, and I would click and very softly and give her a treat. And invariably, there would be somebody who would look at us and go, oh, 
Isn't that sweet, the way you have to bribe her? And I just would smile back and not say anything because I wasn't bribing her. I was reinforcing her good behavior. But it's so interesting to hear that language because it says so much about that person's experience, learning history, worldview. And it, it doesn't matter when, you know, whenever I've taken our clicker trained animals out in public, whether it's the horses or the goats, you will always hear sort of if I listen, I'm just working with the animal and I'm training them and, and, and it's, I'm not really doing a commentary. I'm just working on their manners out in public. And if I listen to the, the conversation of people going by, I will always invariably, I will hear, oh, yes, they're bribing them. It's so, so interesting. So that's the worldview that treats are about bribing your animal to do what's right. And that's just being indulgent and it's immoral. And basically that comes from no distinction is being made between indulgent laissez-faire and nurturant parent training. So the strict father model, they've in that model, they've lumped all three of those different types of parenting all into one basket. And so this is one of the many reasons that people get so stuck on feeding treats. If you've lumped those three parenting styles all into one basket, of course you're not going to be able to separate out the use of treats and see them as reinforcers. You're just going to see the use of treats as nothing more than bribes. And treats are a sign of immoral weakness. So of course it's no wonder that within this frame, people feel so obliged to oppose the use of treats in training. Mm -hmm. But what happens if we take each of these parenting styles and put it in its own basket? Let's see where that takes us. So in the indulgent parenting, children are given anything they want whenever they want it. And there's nothing required in return. In the laissez-faire parenting, children can do whatever they want without having any boundaries. So, you know, that's the, the classic example of that is always the child who's running up and down the grocery store pulling boxes of cereal off the shelf. And in these two models, children are not required to take responsibility for themselves or for others. But in the nurturing parent basket, children are taught moral responsibility. They're taught that it's wrong to harm others, and it's also wrong to allow someone to be harmed. So it's very much, it's very right to provide care and assistance to others. So the strict parent's view of treats is based on this on seeing the laissez-faire and the indulgent parenting models. And in these two models, children are not required to take responsibility for others or for themselves. So it's no wonder that no amount of discussion about treats being reinforcers and clicker training being science-based, no amount of discussion around that is going to help. That in the strict father metaphor, 
treats are seen as a sign of immoral weakness. And within that frame, treats really cannot be considered. And we're going to talk about frames in a little bit and what you do to open the lines of communication so that perhaps, perhaps something like treats could be considered, could be seen differently. But let's stay in the nurturing parent basket for a moment. In the nurturing parent basket, it's wrong to harm others. And it's wrong to allow them to be harmed. It's right to be aware of the individual needs of each person and to care for them. So responsibility towards others is taught. And in the teaching of that, treats are very welcome as reinforcers. So when, you, when an individual is in distress, someone raised in the nurturing parent model is going to want to step in and intervene. That children are brought up to understand and to empathize with others. So in order to understand someone else, you first need to tolerate them. And you have to be willing and able to consider their perspective on things. And I think that's really an important takeaway in terms of understanding all the conversations that swirl around the climate change crisis. That we need to be able to consider other people's perspective and to be able to do it without feeling that knee-jerk reaction of pushing against. So rather than judging people, you work hard to understand them. If your goal is to understand others, then here's a great quote from George Lakoff. Then you cannot maintain a system that divides the world into right and wrong based on values that are highly specific to your own moral system. That would, in fact, be quite problematic, and it would make you prone to push your values onto others. So let's look at, at that for a moment too, because that's really interesting. That was a interesting thread to follow within the Lakoff work. This how we view and, and, and what we feel we need to do when somebody expresses opinions that are uh, different from our own worldview or uh, the values that we hold. So in the strict father model, the strict father is an absolute moral authority. He is not to be challenged. Um, I remember an experience early on with, uh, when I was visiting at a friend's house and she said something, and I, I don't even know what we were talking about, but she said something in which she was disagreeing with her father. And her father told her in no uncertain terms that she was not to talk back to him like that. And that was quite a shock to me because that was not the kind of communication that I was accustomed to in my family, that we had much more of a back and forth exchange of, of ideas. So this was, a, this was quite enlightening to me. And we're actually going to address that experience in a little bit when we start talking about bi-conceptuals. 
Um, so the strict father is the absolute moral authority. He's not to be challenged. And since the father is the legitimate authority in the family, that means that the values he holds are by definition good and right. And people who live by values that differ from his threatens what he sees as the legitimate authority of the father. So somebody holding views other than his own is not just that, well, that, that person just has a different worldview. It's that person can't be tolerated. So it becomes the moral duty of the father to not just uphold his values within the family, but also to defend them against other value systems. That tolerating values that oppose strict father morality is seen as moral weakness. And this really fascinated me because it, it helped me to understand some of the things that we see going on in general politics, in general, uh, some of these, the cultural dynamics that we see. You know, why does it matter to somebody living in, let's say, Ohio, what somebody else in living in California is doing in the privacy of their own home? You know, I can see that it would matter if it begins to uh, affect the the sort of public spaces. But why does it matter what somebody is doing in their own home? You know, if you want to uh, drink, for example, that's not a problem. It's only a problem if you get in a car and drive after you've been drinking. But I don't need to worry about what you're doing in the privacy of your own home unless it begins to trickle out onto the public thoroughfare. So this really helped me to understand why you get some of this this intense pushing against some of the values that other people hold. So this also helps help me to understand some of the things that I see happening in the horse world or that I hear from others uh, that they have experienced. So for example, when you start clicker training and you use treats and you're in a boarding barn, one of the things that often happens is people will voice their opinion in a really strong way. Uh, and they will tell that individual that they should not, must not, will not use treats, that they're going to ruin the horse. And when you see that, what you often see are both the strict father and the nurturant parent model being played out. So it's an interesting place to really begin to understand how these two dynamics work. In the nurturant parent model, tolerance is a sign of strength. It's based on empathy. And it allows for people to cooperate with and to watch out for each other. So again, here's a quote from Lakoff. So in this model, instead of having rigid notions of what constitutes the right and wrong, people must be allowed to be who they are as individuals. This means that you welcome different religions, different sexual and gender identities, different cultural norms, and so on. Not tolerating those who are different would constitute a threat to the progressive value system. 
because that would violate its core values, empathy, nurturance, and social responsibility. And that's from the brain's politics. However, progressive tolerance ends where harm to others begins. So protecting someone against harm is also an important component of the nurturing parent. So when you start to use treats with a horse, what you're going to see is the, the strict parents are going to oppose the use of food on moral grounds, but the nurturant parent is going to be convinced that it isn't safe. So they're both going to oppose your use of clicker training because they think your horse is going to bite you trying to get his treats. And in the strict father model, he's morally appall appalled by your choice. But in the nurturant parent model, it's, it's really that they're just trying to protect you from what they see as a potential risk. So metaphors matter. And when you see the world through these various lenses, you begin to understand where somebody is coming from. And understanding their metaphors can really help you to reframe and restructure the dialogue. So for example, you know, if you have a situation where, let's say a horse just, just bit you, you would think, all right, what do you do when your horse bites you? Well, most of us would think, well, I, I know the answer. It's obvious. You would, and then we would fill in the blank. But what you begin to see is there's not really one answer. And if we had a room full of people, if those of you who are listening to this, if we were all gathered together in a large room and, and I said, your horse just bit you, what do you do? Fill in the blank and let me know. We would find that there isn't one answer, that there are many, many answers. So in the strict father model, when the horse bites you, it's not simply that the behavior was bad, but it equates with a bad individual and the individual must be punished. So there's direct causation. And the answer to that is you must punish the horse. So it's not the behavior alone which is bad. It's the individual, and that individual must be punished. But in contrast, the nurturant parent is going to have more of a systemic causation. So we'll have another quote from Lakoff. Crime is the outcome of a number of distinct but interrelated societal causes. Therefore, the most efficient way to fight crime is to fight its root causes via preventative social policies. Protecting society against crime means to counteract its roots, not to prosecute and lock up criminals after the fact. Now, oddly enough, this has a direct bearing on the climate crisis. Because if we're going to really solve this problem, we need to do a bit more than just the direct causation, that we really need to look at some of the, the roots of the problem. And we're not going to solve it by looking directly at the problem, that we need to really become more creative. And in focusing on what we want, we will find the solutions lying there. So the frame that we're in 
really helps us to find solutions, or it takes us to different kinds of solutions. So in, in one frame, it might take you to a punishment-based system. And in another frame, it's going to t- take you to more of a constructional-based solution. So these two models present very different worldviews. And often people assume that there is only one right and one wrong way of viewing the world. But the two parenting metaphors really create very different and very opposing views. The strict father frame is structured around social dominance. The nurturant parent frame is based on social empathy. And each one is equally true to those who endorse them, even if they conflict with each other and lead to very contrasting choices. What Lakoff would argue is that really both of those worldviews, in fact, it's not just those two, but many different worldviews are contained within each one of us. But we're going to stay with that dichotomy of the competitive worldview of the strict father frame and the nurturing worldview of the nurturant parent frame. And we'll start with the nurturant parent, which is centered around so much around empathy. And so one of the questions becomes, what is empathy? And to answer that question, Lakoff looked at some of the work that's emerging in neuroscience. And in particular, he looked at mirror neurons. Now, what I'm discovering with the neuroscience is this is a rapidly progressing field that, and that many of the things that we thought we understood and thought we knew a few years ago, um, they've now changed entirely how we uh, are talking about and viewing some of the, the, some of the things that have been emerging from neuroscience. So when, when I talk about things like the mirror neurons, I fully expect that in 10 years or maybe even less than that, we'll have a very different view of how they work and what their function is. That's all right. For right now, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm going to treat them as a metaphor and we'll let the science take them wherever they go. So mirror neurons. Currently, the understanding is that the mirror neurons fire whenever we carry out an action. And they fire as well when we watch someone carry out that same action. So if I see you mm, eating an ice cream cone, there will be mirror neurons in my brain that fire in the same way that they would fire if I were eating the ice cream cone. I can really relate to the experience that I'm seeing. And what they're finding is that there are connections in the brain between the region where the mirror neurons are and the region that manages emotions. So this really does play a role in how we are able to experience what somebody else is is feeling and, and doing. So when I was putting together the conference presentation for Lakoff's work, and I wanted various pictures to illustrate the slides I was putting up, I thought, well, what I want is 
a picture of the same person looking really happy, laughing, and a picture of the same person looking grim or unhappy. And I thought, you know, the easiest place to find that would be to look for some pictures of President Obama. Now, it doesn't really matter how you view Obama's presidency. I think it is very fair to say that when you look at his face and when he's smiling, he had a great smile because of the bone structure of his face, that when he smiles, the expression is, it it lights up his whole face. And certainly, there are many pictures as well during his presidency when he was looking very serious and grim. So I went looking for those pictures, and I googled Obama, and I pulled up a whole screen full of Obama smiling, laughing. And as I was looking through the pictures, trying to choose one that would work for me, I found that I was smiling and feeling much brighter and happier than I had before I started looking at those pictures. Now, this wasn't a conscious choice. This wasn't something that I made a decision about, that our brain notices what we are seeing in other people. And it notices those movements and via the mere neurons. So when we observe somebody looking sad, our brain activates the same neurons that would be firing if we were feeling sad. And if we observe somebody who's looking happy, our brain activates the same neurons that would be firing if we were feeling happy. So it's not a conscious decision to have empathy with others, that the mere neurons are activated in our brains automatically. We have no control over this. I had no control over the shift in my mood as I looked at these pictures. It's all natural. That empathy is a natural function of our body. It's rooted in the physiology and the structure of our brain. Now, we can certainly learn to be more empathetic by being nurtured and treated with empathy by others, but we have the, it's like we have the the right equipment to be empathetic. Well, by the same token, social dominance also has a physical origin. So when you were a small child, you may have I don't know, you may have wrestled with your siblings or wrestled with your friends and you discovered that there were some people who were stronger than you are and some people uh, some people could impose their will on you. And then there were others where you were stronger than they were. Or maybe you were playing with some toys and your friend, um, the child that you were playing with, took one of the toys that you were playing with and and you couldn't do anything about it. He was bigger than you were. But then you discovered that the adult who was nearby took the toy from him and handed it back to you. So you learn through these experiences about this these social dominance hierarchies. And so this is also natural. It's also embedded in your life experience. And whichever type of family you grew up in, strict or nurturing, you would still have been exposed 
to some of these experiences. So you would be able to relate to uh, the empathetic view of the world. And you would also be able to relate to, you know, some people can impose their will on others. And even if you grew up in a very, let's say, in a very strict father uh, type of parenting, you would still have been exposed to the other type of parenting via your friends, via your teachers, books, movies, you know, television. You'd be familiar with both models. And that would be true as well of somebody who grew up in a very nurturing parent household that through their life experience, they would have, they would be familiar to some degree with the strict parent model, which means that you can be bi-conceptual or really we could say multi-conceptual because there are many more models than just these two, but these are the two frames that we're looking at within the Lakoff work. So bi-conceptual, somehow when you first hear that, it's like, ooh, is that really something that I want to be? But bi-conceptual simply means you can use either moral system. And which one depends largely on the language that is used? That words and metaphors matter. They trigger one frame over another. And that brings us to the next piece of Lakoff's work, which is really what I wanted to look at when I started thinking about this in terms of the climate change, and that's frames. So this is, I think, just a great place to stop. I'll leave you with that cliffhanger because the, the use of frames, what they mean, and the effect that they have on our thinking, I think is really important to understand that if we want to be effective communicators, we need to understand the importance of frames, how to activate frames, and what happens when we start pushing against and we end up activating a frame that is in opposition to what we are trying to create. So that's going to be for next week. That's where we'll go in the next episode. And in the meantime, to use one of Lakoff's metaphors, I've given you a lot of ideas to chew on, and you're probably going to need some time to digest them all. There are a lot of connections to be made, lots of dots to connect, and I'm sure as you've been listening to this, you've been making your own associations. The associations you make are going to depend very much upon what frame you were in as you were hearing this this podcast. So stopping here is going to give you time to think about Lakoff's work. And in part three, we're going to move on to what is really, I think, the most important part of his work, especially as it relates to climate change. So that's going to be his work on frames. And in the meantime, I will thank you for listening. Remember, do please share these podcasts with others. The larger the community, the more influence we have. Remember, horse people can make a difference.